Good evening. It is good to be together to worship God. And if you are visiting with us tonight, thank you so much for being with us. We hope that you can come back time and time again. If you will open your Bibles to Isaiah, the 43rd chapter. We'll look at one verse in just a few, few moments out of Isaiah, the 43rd chapter. It is exciting to be a part of a congregation that is busy in the work of the Lord. Uh, it's exciting the opportunities that God gives us. I can't remember a time uh, where so much good has been happening in so many different areas. I think about just the activity I saw around the building yesterday with some uh, working on quilts for orphans, others working in uh, the, the educational department, working on storage areas. And then we walk down our foyer and we see things set up about Friends Day and we see the wonderful ministry of the Tuesday Thursday School and the opportunities that uh, you have to be a part of that and to help with that even for next year for our children to be a part of it and to be a student in it. It is wonderful uh, all that so many are doing to glorify God and to serve each other, to serve our community, and to serve God. And uh, let's pray that we be wise in all that we do, and then let's give God all the glory for it. Keep in mind, this is just the right time to really start giving uh, in-depth planning to who all are you going to invite for Friends Day. Uh, you have next Sunday, and then the next Sunday, that's it. So two weeks from today. And so now's the time to be really working on targeting those invitations and, and being fervent in prayer and following up with phone calls and mentioning it if it's someone you work with from time to time or maybe a neighbor. But make sure that you keep some of the cards with you at all times. You may run into somebody that you haven't thought of, but yet when you see them, you want to invite them. So have some uh, in your jacket pocket or in your purse or on the dashboard of your vehicle. Uh, but make sure you have some with you, and then also make sure that you've uh, volunteered in ways that you can uh, to help with that day also. And let's do everything that we can do uh, to invite people to come and to see not just what this congregation is about, but hopefully that they'll learn of the Lord and say, I want to go back. I want to learn more. And what a wonderful opportunity it'd be for us to have someone that becomes our brother and sister in Christ, and that may just be the way that we can reach them to encourage them. And let's make sure that we do our part. We appreciate each one that's already made plans. Uh, again, talking about things that took place at the building yesterday, I saw a couple of you coming through, picking up those and going out into your community uh, to pass them out. So uh, a lot of good is being done by a lot of folks. Today, this morning, we addressed a topic that's somewhat difficult. It's a topic that I suppose none of us want to think about it. But yet it raises the awareness of how we could view and how many do view the worth of a child in the womb. Oftentimes in our culture today, whether or not the child is a fetus or a baby in their language is determined by whether it's wanted or unwanted. You see, if it's wanted, people go up and say, what are you going to name your baby? No one ever goes up and says, what are you going to name your fetus? You see, if it's wanted, folks don't talk about aborting the wanted. But yet, folks talk about aborting the one that has become an inconvenience in their life. Now, just as a springboard from that tonight, I want you to think about, how is it that we should view children? 
And there's no better study than to see how God views His children. And that's the way we ought to view our children. And when I say children, our children, I don't just mean our offspring. I'm talking about as a society. This is the way we ought to view the children of our society. This is a way as a church family we ought to view our youth here and the the opportunity to reach out to our youth even in this community. This is the way we ought to view our extended family members that are young in our family. Isaiah the 43rd chapter is a chapter about where God is speaking about how He wants to redeem Israel. And so He's talking about them as His children, as the nation of Israel. And I want to just pick up in the middle of these paragraphs here where He's talking about how He views Israel and what He wants to do for Israel. And so in Isaiah the 43rd chapter and verse 4, He says about His children of Israel, He says, Since you were precious in My sight, you have been honored, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people... For your life. Friends, tonight it's this simple. God looks to His children and He says, You're precious to me. I honor you. I love you. That's a simple lesson, isn't it? Let's develop that lesson and make sure that we leave here understanding how God views children. And let's make sure that we see the worth of all children in this same way. First He said to them, you're precious. If you will be turning over to 1 Peter, the second chapter, what does it mean to be precious? If something is precious, not only does it have a value, but in that value is one that we appreciate. In other words, if I say that something is precious to me, or you say something is precious to you, you're saying that it's valuable to you. So then the idea is, I cherish this, I protect this. If we really believe that something is precious to us, we maintain a value that guards it. And so it is as we think about our children, do we really see them as precious, that we want to protect them and that we want to guard them? Now think as we even thought this morning about the topic matter this morning. Folks that are pro-abortion don't value children in that way. They're in the womb. Not to the point that they say we cherish them, we want to protect them. It's just the opposite. God knew what it was to send His Son to the earth. And God said, I want to tell you how I viewed my Son. He says, I viewed Him as precious. But I also recognized that there, were, there was a world out there that rejected my Son. Let's read about that. You remember last year we went through the taste, the New Testament series. You remember that came out of verse 2. We're in 1 Peter, the second chapter. Notice where he says, Newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. And then verse 3 says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And so it's with that setting there of the context that then we go in and read verse 4 where God speaks about Jesus and He says, Coming to Him as to a living stone. Now he's talking about coming to Jesus as to a living stone. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. And so God says about His Son, Jesus, He says, I have chosen, and to me He is so precious. I value my Son. I cherish my Son. But I understand that there's others that have rejected my Son. As a matter of fact, the envy and the scorn became so great that they crucified Him. They rejected Him. You know, when you stop and think about it, that's pretty much where everyone falls is in one of those two areas. We either deem the worth of human life as precious, 
or we reject that concept. We either look at our children and we believe that our children are more precious than possessions or anything else, or we reject that concept. We believe that their life is just as precious as anyone else's life. In other words, it's not a selfish mentality that says, since I'm an adult, I'm valued more. And since you're a child, you're valued less. I remember one time, and it's just one of those almost snapshots in my memory as a child, and I don't really know why it stands out so much. And I don't know the proper term, but you know the rings that you place over a candle that catches the wax when it drips? I'd never seen those before. And I remember someone gave my mother a pair of those, and she placed them on some very pretty candles that was up on our fireplace in our living room. And I was the only one in the house at the moment. I don't remember where others were. They were out in the yard or wherever. I threw a ball or something, and those fell from the mantel to the tile on our fireplace. Now keep in mind, I'd never seen them before, and all I knew, when my mother opened them, she seemed like she was very excited to receive them. And not only was I afraid because I had broken them, but I thought it was something that she cherished greatly. So I had that broken heart feeling of I have just broken something that meant so much to her. And I remember quickly cleaning that up and going and lying on my bed and crying because I didn't know how to tell her. And I remember her coming in and, and us talking. And I don't remember the details of the conversation, but I remember walking away from that situation with this. Son, I value you more than any possession. How does God view children? God says to His children of Israel, He says, you're precious. I cherish you. Your five-year-old is learning to ride his bicycle. Is he going to scratch your car? You bet he is. Which are you going to value the most? When that milkshake is spilt when the car is only three days old? Which are you going to value the most? When that piece that really is very special to you, that's sitting in the living room, which are you going to value most? And you understand, I'm not saying that children do not need, that they, that they shouldn't have guidelines and that they shouldn't be disciplined. Of course they should have all that. We're talking about this, friends. When people make mistakes, are we willing to forgive them? Think about how precious we are in the sight of God. Not only does He say you're precious, but He proves it by saying, you've made mistakes. And because you've made mistakes, I'm going to give you the greatest gift that could ever be given. I'm going to give you my Son so that you can have redemption. You want to prove that someone is precious to you? See how you treat them whenever they've done wrong, and you'll find out how precious they are to you. God looked at us as a human race when we were nothing but enemies and sinners. And Romans teaches us it's then that He gave us His Son. One of the key attributes of viewing someone as precious is that not only do we protect them and we cherish them, but we forgive them. We help them.
as they struggle along. Every child that is deemed precious by their guardians will benefit from a guardian that has helped them grow through their mistakes. That's so much like God. He says, just as we've read here about babies desiring milk, I want to take you while you're that baby, and I want to help you grow, and when you fall, I want to help pick you up, and when you've sinned against me, I want to forgive you. God's just saying, continue to stay with me. You're precious. But then another thing that he said there in our text in Isaiah 43, is he said, not only are you precious, and note he said, in my sight, not everyone thought that the children of Israel was precious, were precious. But then second, he says, you've been honored. God honors. Now, oftentimes we think of honor in the sense of that's something that the younger do for the older, and it is uh, most oftentimes used in that sense. But when we think about the definition of honor, of placing a value upon someone and, and, and esteeming them in that way, we can all value each other and we can all place that honor upon each other. Now, this word in the Hebrew is an interesting word because it's not always translated honor. This is a word that can be translated to mean something very negative or something very positive. It depends what the context is. If it is negative, it means a heavy or burdensome. And if it's positive, it usually means very much, very rich, if you will. Or if it's dealing with glory and honor, it's very much glory or very much honor. And so he's using the word here that, that is kind of a strong word in the sense of a measurement, if you will. And so when he's saying to his children, you're precious, and then he says, I'm honoring you, he's saying, you're noble. I really honor you. Let me give you two examples, just for interest's sake of how this word is used. Look back to Genesis, the 13th chapter. In Genesis 13th chapter, this is how Abraham is explained as he is going to take his move and here move. And, and here's how this word is used, but if you'll notice, it doesn't look like honor at all in these verses. This is Genesis the 13th chapter and verse 2. Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And someone says, that doesn't look like honor at all. That's where it's used in the sense to say very much so. In other words, not only did he have livestock and gold and silver, he had much of it. And so here, that word, that same Hebrew word is used. Flip over a few pages in your Bible to Genesis, the 18th chapter, and see how it's used about Sodom and Gomorrah. In the 18th chapter, in verse 20, the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave. And so there he's saying their sin is grave. In other words, their sin is a heavy burden too to them, the ones that are sinning, to the nation itself, but also it's a burden to God. So as we think about this, how can we relate it to family? How can we relate it to how we view children? We need to view children. And even though we usually think about the commands for children to honor their mother and father, and that definitely is scriptural and it's a, it's a command from God, we need to realize that God honors us. And we ought to honor our children, and it ought to be very much honored. To give them the worth, to esteem them for who they are and how God views them, therefore how we should view them. I want to go back and touch on...
people is anger. If I say that I honor you, but yet my interaction with you on a regular basis is anger, I honored you throughout that time period. Anger will eventually... I know we can be angry and sin not, but then the very next verse says we can't give place to Satan. In other words, we address that before the sun goes down. So if we're not addressing that, and in our relationship with our children, or even if it's a relationship between a teacher and a child here in our Bible class department, or, or if it's with a child that you have in your neighborhood, if it is a continual relationship of anger, and, and that is the atmosphere of that relationship, honor is not being shown. Look, if you will, over to James. Let's go to James, the first chapter, and let's build on uh, that verse and one other very quickly. In James, the first chapter, notice how he says in verse 19, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, it's interesting to me that so oftentimes we've emphasized the first two aspects of this verse. How God has given us two ears, so let's be real quick to hear. He's given us one mouth, let's be slow to speak. But sometimes we kind of separate that from wrath, as if that part's not important. It is very important, and it ties right in to the entire context here. And what is it? People that honor each other Listen to each other. Does God honor you? What does your Father say? Pray without ceasing. God says, I'm swift to hear. I care for you. Cast your cares upon me because I care. Friends, God honors us. He honors us so much that He says, I want to hear what's happening in your life. I want to hear your prayers of request. I want to hear your prayers of appreciation. I want to hear your prayers of praise. Never stop talking to me. That's what God says. Now, if in our relationship with our children, if we always have that open-door policy and we're always nurturing that, where it's not that we're always sitting down and talking to our children, but sometimes we're sitting down and listening to our children. Do our children think that they have to say everything we want to hear? Or do they know that we're willing to listen? To listen to what is on their mind and in their life. It builds up a frustration and an anger in any relationship when someone believes that the other person doesn't really care. I could go to them and I could tell them my problem and they'd say they're too busy. They'd say they don't care. They'd say that's your problem. What if there's children that attend this congregation? Do they believe that as a congregation we care? We're willing to listen? Do they believe that the Bible class that they attend, that their teacher has opened ears and is willing to listen? Do they think that their ministers have open ears and they're, they're ready to listen? Do they believe that the elders that, that shepherd over them have open ears and are ready to listen? Do they believe that there's a house full of adults here that think that they are precious and they want to prove that by honoring them 
by listening. How important is this concept of not stirring up wrath? You probably remember without even turning to it in Ephesians, the sixth chapter, what he said to fathers. To not provoke your children to wrath. And here in James, he says, speak less, listen more, avoid wrath. It's so important for children to learn from the wisdom of older generations. We're not undermining that. We're not taking away from that. If there's children here in this group that have not sat on the front porch with someone that's older than 65 years old and you've just talked an afternoon away and you've sipped on a Coca-Cola or, or, or have eaten some ice cream, if you've not done that, you've not lived. And you're missing out on some important wisdom. And I'd encourage you to find someone and, and do that. We're not belittling and taking away the fact that, that younger people need to listen to older people and they need to learn from their wisdom. But we're saying it's a two-way street. Both need to be listened to. But let's close this by thinking about God saying to the children of Israel, I love you. That's powerful. For Him to say, I love you. Look with me, if you will, to John the 10th chapter, and let's think of how he said this. In John the 10th chapter, in verse 28, now leading up to 28 is the passage about the shepherds. And you remember the shepherds, he explained, Jesus explained, he said, the hireling, whenever the wolves come in, he'll run for his own life, and there'll be a scattering of sheep as he catches them. But he says, the good shepherd will stay and protect the sheep. Why? Because he's willing to lay down his life for the sheep. And that's where Jesus says, no man takes my life, I lay it down. Now in view of the movie that's coming out this week and all the discussion that might be taken about who is guilty, we need to remind our friends at work and at school and the community, no one took Jesus' life. He laid down his life. And it was the guilt of sin, everyone's sin, that put him up on the cross. Were there individuals that were guilty that day of the physical activity? You bet. Absolutely. The Jews were, and Pilate and the Roman government was, yes. But we all are. And so this passage is interesting where Jesus says, let me tell you the ultimate sacrifice that this good shepherd would make for the sheep. I'd give my life for them. But then it's in this setting that we read where God pictures us being. Don't take this for granted. Listen to this. As He says in verse 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And so what he's talking about here, that if someone decides to leave God, it's their doing to leave God. You see, I can't go along and just pick someone here that I want to snatch out of the hand of God. And you're saying, I want to faithfully serve God. And someone says, no, I'm going to pull you away spiritually. We each make our decision if we want to pull away from God or if we want to stay with God. And so that's the teaching here in this verse, although it's been mistaught by some religious groups. But what I want you to see is not just that teaching. I want you to see, as we could ask God, God, give us an analogy. Give us a picture. We're your children. Where are we? In my hands. That's beautiful. We don't picture ourselves with a close relationship with God at a distance, although He's the Almighty God and Creator of all. 
God always pictures Himself close to us. We could turn over to Mark and see where, where the little children are trying to come and to be brought to Jesus. And some of the disciples are turning them away. And Jesus says, no, bring them. And Mark says, He took them in His arms and blessed them. And we think about the story of the prodigal son returning home in Luke 15. And in that story, we know the representation of the prodigal son being us, guilty of sin. And the Father is God Almighty. What does He do? He doesn't say, my son returned home and so I made sure that his bedroom was unlocked and I went around back and continued some more chores. He runs down the road to meet him and he kisses him and he falls on his neck. What's the picture? Friends, page after page we see analogies where God says it straight out or indirectly by his actions he's saying, I love you. I want you in my hands. I want you in my arms. I want to put my head on your shoulders. You're my children. You're precious. I honor you. I love you. How many times do children need to be told that they're loved? I don't guess we can count that high. When things are going in a difficult fashion in your life, who do you want to talk to? Who do you want to pick up the phone and say, hey, just call to say hello? Maybe you don't even want to tell them your struggles. You just want to talk to them because things are being difficult in your life at the moment. Who is it you want to call? I would almost say, and this is just a David Shannon guesstimate, but nine out of ten times you're going to call someone that has told you often, I love you. Why? Because if they're saying that and mean it, that means the world. That changes everything. To be on this world and not loved and to be in this world and loved, there's no comparison. The most wealthiest person in the world that does not have love has nothing. We have a God that says, I love you. You're precious. I honor you. Let all of us always look at children and convey to them how we treasure them and how we want to honor them and show them the worth that they deserve. And let's tell them often how much we love them by word and by deed. Abortion violates all three of those in a horrible fashion. Let's make sure tonight that we go from the far extreme of that and we go to where God is. And let's see children the way God does. And let's rejoice that He sees us in that way. And so we'll extend the invitation by asking, are you a child of God? There's no greater blessing to be adopted in the family of God where we can be in His arms. We can have His head on our shoulders, so to speak, as we come home. And if we've never done that, what a joy it'll be in your life and in our lives and among the heavenly host. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you're willing to repent of sins and confess before man that He is the Son of God, won't you be baptized into Christ, 
for the remission of sins, removing the guilt of any sin that you've ever committed. And the Lord will create in you a guilt-free. So, what a blessing. Why would God do that for you? Why would God do that for me? Because He says we're precious. He loves us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. No other reason. That's it. He loves us. Maybe you strayed from God. Think about that prodigal son that came home. God's arms were wide open. His joy was ecstatic. His gifts were plentiful. His compassion was obvious. I have no doubt it would be that way tonight. That that kind of reaction would be God's reaction tonight. Let's not rob ourselves of that kind of relationship. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.